Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. California announces that COVID tiers are on their way out. We'll be getting rid of the blueprint as you know it today. That's on June 15th if we continue the good work. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Lessons from last month's deadly border-related crash in Imperial County. The main driving factor of this migration currently is the economic devastation wrought by the pandemic on countries in the developing world. San Diego County schools receive a huge influx of funds from federal COVID relief. And the San Diego Opera navigates its major productions through fluctuating COVID restrictions. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. With COVID vaccinations up and COVID case rates continuing to decline, California is preparing to eliminate the COVID tier system. Governor Newsom has announced that the standards that have ruled our lives and economy for months, the tiers from purple to yellow, will end in mid-June. We are announcing today that on June 15th, we will be moving beyond the blueprint and we'll be getting rid of the colored tiers We'll be moving past the dimmer switch. We'll be getting rid of the blueprint as you know it today. That's on June 15th if we continue the good work. The entire state will be reopened to business and everyday activities, adhering to what's being called common sense measures. Joining me is KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, welcome. Hey, Maureen. So does the elimination of tiers mean the state is going back to pre-pandemic normal? It sort of does. You know, state officials are, are referring to this as the post-blueprint era in California. Now, there will still be some restrictions. Now, the governor and his staff are referring to this as a full reopening. Uh, but we did hear from Health and Human Services Secretary Mark Galley uh, sort of nailing down this a little bit more. Uh, he said things like conventions with 5,000 or more people will not be allowed to happen uh, past June 15th. Now, if the uh, event organizers can prove that those people are vaccinated, maybe they can. And some uh, big indoor large events and outdoor events like Coachella, those will still be not allowed uh, past the summer. Okay, so how does this affect how and where we need to wear masks and social distancing? Right. Yeah. Some states don't have mask mandates. California does. And Governor Newsom says that they're going to keep it for the foreseeable future. Now, we don't really know how long that's going to be in effect. But the governor says, you know, even post the summer uh, when these restrictions are lifted, the mask mandate will still be in effect. 
Okay, so why did the governor say he's taking this step now? Well, basically, he says hospitalizations are way down and uh, vaccinations are way up. You know, more than 20 million doses have now been delivered in California. The governor says that beats out every state in the country. Obviously, we do have a lot more people living in California. But he now says 41% of residents over the age of 16 have gotten at least one dose. So he says we're on a good path to getting toward herd immunity. And basically, you know, coming up April 15th, vaccinations open up to everyone age 16 and older. And, you know, between then and this announcement is about eight weeks since State officials are thinking that's enough time uh, to give everyone the opportunity who wants to get a vaccination to get one. So part of today's announcement, you know, we know it's still, you know, more than a month away, but he wants businesses to be able to prepare for what's coming. Now, when the COVID tiers are eliminated in June, what types of things will we be able to do that we can't do now? You know, uh, uh, Dr. Galley said, you know, we can go and visit our family again. Um, Also, you know, a lot of restrictions are gone for capacity, you know, so that could mean we're back to seeing, you know, full packed bars, packed sports venues, some of the uh, much, much larger events like those, you know, music festivals that draw more than 100,000 people. Those are still on hold, but I think you're going to be seeing a return to, you know, pre-pandemic normal. Obviously, though, uh, mask wearing is still going to be something that's required. Okay, this was a big announcement today, but San Diego was just about to fall from the red to the orange tier this week. Is that still happening? Yeah, we actually did fall from the red to the orange tier. So that means now that restrictions are being eased even more. And state officials basically said that they're going to keep updating the guidance as we go along here. You know, the blueprint, while it is going away in 10 weeks, it's it's still here for, for 10 weeks. Um, and basically, you know, retail and malls capacity increases, uh, bars that don't serve food can open up outdoors, gyms, you know, capacity can increase inside movie theaters. It was only 10% now that that can increase as well. And as we progress more through the tiers, that capacity will only increase more in. Now, other areas of the country, they are seeing spikes in COVID cases. Is there concern that that could still happen here? Yes. You know, state officials are obviously concerned that 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 could happen, but they think that we've passed the point of having enough vaccinations. Also, too, going through this process, they're going to be monitoring a a couple couple metrics. You know, one, basically vaccinations. They want to make sure that everybody who's interested in a vaccination can get one within two weeks of first having that 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 thought of wanting to get vaccinated. Um, Also, they want to make sure that hospitalizations don't surge. You know, that was something that that was the whole point of, of, of these restrictions, right, is to protect the hospital system, not overwhelm our healthcare system system. Uh, That's something that they're still going to be focusing on. Um, Obviously, they're going to be monitoring, you know, if coronavirus patients are coming in, that's not uh, as big of an issue if they have been vaccinated, uh, but something they're going to continue to monitor as we move through here. The governor kind of also said that it's sort of dependent on keeping these metrics low, the case count low, the hospitalizations low um, to get to this uh, point where we lift all the restrictions come summer. And what about the threat of the variants that we've been hearing about? Right. Well, you know, the governor, he sort of akins this to like a race, right, in terms of vaccinating people as quickly as they can, right? Because for a variant to happen, there needs to be mutation and mutation can only happen if the virus is spreading. So really, they're trying to vaccinate as many people as they can, as quickly as they can, obviously knowing that those variants are out there. Did the governor talk about any road bumps that could maybe slow us down on our progress toward that June 15th date? 
he did talk about vaccination supply, you know, getting a lot of questions from reporters asking, you know, when's the supply increasing? How much is the supply going to be increasing? Um, you know, saying that they are getting assurances from some of those drug makers that those supplies are increasing, but they're going to need to see that steady supply increasing. Obviously now, you know, when this announcement comes, a lot of people might hear in their head, you know, boom, California is reopened for business. Um, there might be a lot of people traveling in state, out of state. Um, so they're really going to have to monitor to make sure, you know, we don't increase above the threshold for hospitalizations, even though there's no specific number. And also, Maureen, something to keep in mind too, counties, they still have local control. You know, we're going to be hearing uh, from our county officials later today. And, you know, they might say, hey, we're not ready, you know, come June 15th to move this fast. Okay, then. Well, thanks so much. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Maureen. In the early morning of March 2nd, an SUV packed with 25 people was hit by a big rig when the driver of the SUV ran a stop sign. The crash in Imperial Valley is one of the deadliest border-related crashes in recent decades. Those in the SUV paid a smuggler to help them cross into the United States. The suspected smuggler was charged with organizing a human smuggling attempt that caused serious injury. This tragedy highlights a humanitarian crisis at the southern border. Joining me is New York Times reporter Miriam Jordan, who reports on the impact of immigration on the society, culture, and economy of the United States. She's based in Los Angeles. Miriam, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So in your piece, you say the 13 people who died in the crash are a portrait of the migration explosion the U.S. government is struggling to address. How do the backstories of those who died and survived this crash give us a look into why we're seeing this increase? Well, I think that the main driving factor of this migration currently is the economic devastation wrought by the pandemic on countries in the developing world. And in particular, the piece sheds light on the fact that we have growing numbers of single Mexican adults, both men and women, coming to the United States after reframing from doing so for many years because the Mexican economy has been badly battered by the COVID-19 pandemic. And how does this surge in migration compare to previous surges we've seen? It's a surge that we have not seen in about 15 years, the likes of. It's a surge that's more diverse than some of the surges in, you know, the past year, say in the early 2000s. But it's composed of women and children, single adults and unaccompanied minors. And if there was one thing that they all have in common is that they are seeking a better life in the United States. And how did you go about finding the backstories of those in the SUV for this piece you wrote? So um, the story is based on interviews with, you know, survivors and family members who I was able to track down with the assistance of uh, Mexican consular officials, as well as uh, officials from the Guatemalan consulate in Los Angeles. I interviewed agents with the California Highway Patrol, the U.S. Border Patrol, and Homeland Security Investigations. And I, you know, reviewed police reports and a federal complaint that was recently filed against the man accused of organizing this trip, i.e. the um, coyote. 
Hmm. Let's talk about some of those people who were being smuggled into the U.S. when the SUV crashed. One of the survivors, Zephyrina Mendoza, who was badly injured in the crash, why did she say she decided to make the often dangerous trek to the U.S.? Well, you know, Zephyrina lives in a very poor region of of Mexico called Guerrero, a single mom um, trying to eke out an existence, um, you know, doing um, odd jobs. But even somebody like her in the informal economy wasn't making ends meet. So she decided to try to make her way to the strawberry fields of California, where she had family already working. As you said, Mendoza was making very little money. How did she and how do others pay smugglers the high cost of getting them into the U.S.? Um, What I learned from Zephyrina is that some of these coyotes even offer installment plans for paying the debt that these people incur. I mean, obviously, she did not have $9,000 on her. So what she agreed was that once she began working, she would pay, you know, by the month whatever she could toward what she owed. Now, it's quite possible that later she would get threatened or family members in the United States could receive threats from the coyotes saying, you know, we want you to pay up or else. But that was the arrangement that she had struck. Mm. And another one of the people you profile is Yesenia Melendrez, who died in the crash. Tell me a bit about her and why she decided to make the journey. Right. So she's an example of a Central American fleeing gang violence that has really engulfed much of uh, Central America in the last, you know, decade or so. Uh, She was receiving threats on her phone, according to her uncle, who lives in California, felt, you know, that the threats were menacing and um, life-threatening enough that she should leave immediately. And so she and her mother embarked on this journey. And the driver of the SUV also died in the crash. His backstory lines up with why it's believed he was driving. Tell me about that. Right. So... His wife, who I interviewed in Mexicali, the city where the SUV left from, told me that he had less work as a result of the pandemic. He worked in a bakery and in a maquiladora, one of those um, factories along the border that churns out electronics and other products for the American market. In any event, Gyro had less work as a result of the pandemic, was desperate to make money. Um, He had had this idea to start driving um, for Uber. However, Uber requires that cars be of a certain standard. If he went to the United States, he felt that he would quickly earn the money that he needed to buy a car and, you know, start driving in his home country. Thirteen people died in the crash. Twelve survived. Will the survivors stay in the United States? There is a strong chance that they will be able to stay in the United States because they could avail of visas that are made available to witnesses of crimes. They obviously have inside information about how this human smuggling operation was organized, how much, you know, the 
they had to pay, how many people might have been involved in ferrying them across, stashing them in a remote location or staging area before they went across, etc. So it's possible that cooperating would enable them to remain in the United States long term. But that's, you know, not 100% certain. I've been speaking to New York Times reporter Miriam Jordan. Miriam, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. The American Rescue Plan Act, the third federal COVID relief package, is bringing a major influx of cash to San Diego County schools. The Congressional Research Service estimates that the Rescue Act will bring more than $908 million to county school districts. The biggest chunk of the money, more than $340 million, is slated for San Diego Unified, the county's largest school district. As the district prepares to resume in-person classes next week, San Diego Unified and other districts across the county have to decide on the best use of those federal dollars. Joining me is San Diego Unified Board President Richard Barrera. And Richard, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Thank you. What do you think the district needs to do first with this influx of money? So we need to focus first on making sure that as we return students uh, to our classrooms beginning next week, we have all of the health and safety uh, mitigations in place. And so that includes everything from proper ventilation of classrooms, PPE and masks available to everybody, regular cleaning of classrooms, and of course, regular COVID testing. So we will be spending resources on uh, all of those uh, necessary health and safety measures. We then, Maureen, uh, are planning a dramatically expanded summer program this year. So, you know, normally our summer program uh, is just a few hundred high school seniors that need to make up some credits in order to graduate from high school. We're planning on offering a robust summer program to tens of thousands of students uh, this summer at all grade levels. And that will be a combination of uh, students coming into class, working with teachers in the mornings, and then going out and participating in a whole variety of community-based Uh, programs in the afternoon. And we're partnering with the San Diego Foundation. We are investing some of the money that we're getting from the Recovery Act into micro grants for community-based organizations uh, to offer uh, activities for our students over the summer. Richard, a question about the expanded summer program. You say you're offering that to students. Is that something that is required or is that something up to a student to decide whether or not they want to attend? Yeah, so we've made the decision to have a voluntary expanded summer program for students whose parents, you know, wish to participate, as opposed to, you know, for instance, extending the school year, which would be mandatory for all students. We know, you know, students and their families are in, you know, very different places. 
And we think that, you know, many, many of our, you know, families uh, will want to take advantage of the summer program. So, so rather than a mandatory extension of the school year, what we're doing is opening up, you know, a, a summer program for all students who want to participate in that. How does the district plan to be accountable for how it spends this huge amount of taxpayer dollars? Yeah, so first of all, we need to submit a plan to the federal government and regular reporting about how we're spending the money. But we also, you know, we want to engage our community in a pretty deep way about, look, we've got resources now that are available that we believe California public schools should have had for the last several decades. I mean, we think this is actually the adequate level of resources for public education. But now we have it, at least for a while. And so what are the key investments that we want to make, you know, in our students? How do we want to transform our, you know, school system? So it's not just going back to where we were pre-pandemic, which frankly was not adequate, you know, for, for too many of our students. How do we create, you know, the smaller class sizes, the extra time, that students need, uh, you know, whether it's uh, extra tutoring, extra time after the school day, and as we're talking about, you know, expanded summer programs. So we want to engage our community in a real conversation about what's our long-term vision, you know, for the way public education should happen here in San Diego, and how do we use this influx of money to start to build a foundation to get to that, to get to that vision. One last question. San Diego Unified starts reopening next week, one week from today. Are you ready? We are ready. Uh, and in fact, we're spending this week. So all of our staff are now back on our campuses. Uh, and that began yesterday. <clears throat> and, and staff are getting ready to implement you know, all of our health and safety uh, protocols. Uh, but our classrooms are equipped, ready to go. The, the supplies are there and are necessary. And, uh, and parents will be getting notification today from their schools about uh, what, the, what the schedule will look like, at least at the beginning. Um, most of our schools, uh, we believe, will be able to offer a four-day-a-week in-person program and then continue online learning for the students whose parents uh, you know, are, are not yet comfortable having students come back online. We will have some schools that will likely be two days a week because we have, you know, a, a very large number of students that will uh, plan to return. So uh, this is a week of preparation for the staff. And, uh, and then on Monday, our students at all grade levels will start to return. Okay, then I've been speaking with San Diego Unified Board President Richard Barrera. Richard, thank you. Thanks so much, Maureen. San Diego County will pay $3.5 million to the family of 39-year-old Paul Silva, a mentally ill man who died in custody after sheriff's deputies tried to force him out of a jail cell back in 2018. The settlement is the largest for an in-custody death in the San Diego County jail system, and it may not be the last. Kelly Davis is a San Diego writer who's been covering the county jails. This latest article was a collaboration with the San Diego Union-Tribune Kelly, welcome. Hi, thank you. 
Remind us of why Paul Silva was in custody and what his health condition was like while there. Yeah, so uh, Paul Paul suffered from from schizophrenia. He he was he was thirty nine years old. He'd been diagnosed when he was in his twenties, and every now and then he he'd stop taking his medications. And and when he did, you know, his mom, his parents would would try to get him help. His mom in the past had called nine one one and and requested that the uh, San Diego Police Department's psychiatric emergency response team asking for them for their assistance. And and they would show up, they would talk to Paul calmly, and they'd get him to comply. He'd start taking his medication again, and, and he was fine. So so this was uh, in, in February of, of 2018, and, and he had stopped taking his medication again. And, and this time, instead of the PERT team, the psychiatric re- emergency response team showing up, three San Diego police officers showed up. They insisted Paul was on methamphetamine. His mom said no. He's just having a psychotic episode. They arrested him anyhow, took him to jail and booked him for being under the influence, held him for 36 hours, during which time he kind of fell deeper into psychosis. And now San Diego County taxpayers will pay a $3.5 million settlement to Silva's family. What did Silva experience while in jail and where did officers go wrong and how they handled this? His mom had hoped he'd be taken to a, a psychiatric facility or that when he was in the jail, he would be assessed, you know, f- for being schizophrenic and maybe placed in a holding cell where a clinician could could meet with him and, and talk with him. Instead, he was kept in a holding cell for 36 hours. The lights were on constantly. He had no access to fresh water, no access to medical care. You can't lay down in these holding cells. He barely got enough food, which became an issue because he was diabetic. And there's a video footage showing him increasingly acting bizarre, running around the cell, throwing himself to the ground, yelling at the wall. It was very clear that that he, it it should have been very clear to to law enforcement, to deputies, that this was signs of of mental illness. Um, And so, and because of his diabetes, he was also kind of showing the effects of, of hypoglycemia. The Sheriff's Department has since changed its cell extraction policy. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Yeah, so, so one thing with Paul, you know, that it was a very violent cell extraction. He he had stopped breathing because of the weight on him from these six deputies, this tactical team that was trying to restrain him. And one of the saddest parts of, you know, there's a video of this. They finally restrain him after many, many minutes of him, you know, begging, pleading, saying that he can't breathe. When they restrain him, about three minutes had passed since, since you could hear his voice or anything. And finally, some Someone says, is he still breathing? And so one of the new policies is that there has to be a a safety deputy who's during a a cell extraction. That deputy's only job is to monitor the person to make sure that they're still breathing, basically, that they haven't and haven't suffered any serious injury. So I think that's the most significant change that definitely would have probably saved Paul's life. You know, how many other lawsuits are there like this and how many in custody deaths have there been in recent years? Yes, yeah, so the 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 sheriff's department sadly um averages at least a death or more a month and this we've been we've looked back, you know, 10, 12 years and and this has been a pattern. And the county is currently facing at least a dozen lawsuits tied to deaths. Most of them are have to do with deaths. Um some of them have to do with with serious injury where the, where the person is now incapacitated, you know, because of what happened to them in jail. 
Based on the settlement, Silva was having a medical emergency. Can you explain why it is so often people experiencing psychological distress are taken to jail rather than a medical facility? And how is the county addressing that? Because it's police who are called to to handle these folks, the default is that there must be some this person must be on drugs. It's, it's, it can be hard to tell unless you have, you know, trained professional there, even then it could be tricky. Uh, but yeah, that, so that's what happens so often is that, is that folks who are experiencing a mental breakdown and it's, it's assumed they're on drugs, they're taken to jail. Um, there's often not enough clinicians on staff to do a diagnosis uh, and, and beds in, in psychiatric facilities are, are so often full and there's no room. And so jail is, is the default. And, um, you know, Supervisor Nathan Fletcher, who's uh, now the, the chair of the Board of Supervisors, he's promised to allocate more money to mental health treatment to open up more beds for folks having psychiatric emergencies so that, yeah, so hopefully for folks like, you know, what happened to Paul in the future, the default will be to, to have him taken to one of these facilities to be checked out first instead of being taken to jail. I've been speaking with Kelly Davis, a San Diego writer who covers San Diego County jails. Kelly, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Jade. A new study has concluded that the cost of sexual assault and harassment in the U.S. military extends beyond the victims. It's also causing troops to leave the service prematurely, hurting military readiness. From San Antonio, Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project. When Amber Davila joined the Army in 2011, she planned to stay in for the full 20, or until retirement. She took pride in her communications security job. It made her feel like part of a team and a greater good. I used to joke that I was going to eventually become the first female command sergeant major of the Army. That all changed when Davila was sexually assaulted by a fellow soldier in Korea. Even though she was terrified of being ostracized, she eventually reported her attacker, and he was discharged after a lengthy investigation. But for Davila, the ordeal wasn't over. You think you're okay, and then, you know, the commander says, um, you know, horseshoe on me, so everybody kind of moves in. And then suddenly someone's brushing against me and I'm right back in that formation in Korea where this man is torturing me. And it just became overwhelming. She spiraled into anxiety and destructive behavior and spent more and more energy trying to appear fine. When it came time to re-enlist, she had a panic attack. And that's when I decided I, I couldn't do it anymore and that I needed to get out. Davila isn't alone in that decision. According to a new study by the RAND Corporation, sexual assault doubled the odds that a service member would leave the military within 28 months. And about a quarter of troops who were sexually harassed didn't re-up. Andrew Morrell is a senior behavioral scientist at RAND and the study's lead author. We all know, I I think, that uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment has tremendous costs to the individuals involved in it. Uh, But I think less attention has been paid to what the institutional costs are. Using Defense Department data, he tracked the careers of a group of service members who reported sexual assault or harassment. Then he used statistical analysis to figure out how their experiences translated to the entire force. Assaults were associated with about 2,000 more people leaving the military than would normally be expected. Sexual harassment contributed to the departure of an additional 8,000 service members. 
Most who left did so by choice, often sacrificing retirement and other benefits. They may not have felt like they had much choice if, if it was a very toxic work environment, uh, but they weren't kicked out. After the killing of Specialist Vanessa Guillen at Fort Hood in central Texas, an independent review found that commanders weren't paying enough attention to sexual assault and harassment. In some cases, non-commissioned officers didn't encourage reporting and shamed victims. Morale says that's been a problem across the military, but he hopes framing sexual assault and harassment as a retention problem will get their attention. Well, I hope that they use it to emphasize the importance of leadership promoting a command climate that is not permissive with respect to sexual assault and sexual harassment uh, kinds of behaviors. You know, I think it's been hard to get those messages all, all the way down in, you know, into the junior enlisted ranks. President Biden recently ordered a 90-day commission to pursue solutions to sexual assault in the military. One of its goals is to figure out how to reorient the culture against sex crimes. Lynn Rosenthal, a longtime advocate for survivors of gender violence, heads the commission. She told reporters in February that she'll organize listening sessions with service members, especially survivors. This commission says to that service member, you do belong in this military. You belong. And it's our job to make this climate safe for you to be here. The commission is slated to give recommendations to the president this summer. That's too late for former service members like Amber Davila. Since leaving the military in 2015, she started work for the Pink Berets, a women veterans organization in San Antonio. It supports survivors of military sexual trauma and advocates for policy change. But she says she feels a lingering grief about her service, especially when talking with friends whose Army careers have taken off. I'm Carson Freeman, San Antonio. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Cities from Sacramento to Berkeley are moving forward on zoning changes to encourage higher-density housing, such as duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes. But how much of a dent will these new options make in California's housing shortage, and will they be affordable? CAP Radio's Chris Nichols has this story. Construction crews are digging trenches for dozens of new homes in a subdivision in Winters, just outside Sacramento. A small fraction of them will be duplexes, what Laura Pope calls duets. She's a sales consultant for town development. Right here on this corner and the other corner, we'll have the two duets. So this first driveway. Pope we'll says these two-unit homes with a shared wall will go for about $400,000 each. That's about 20% less than the standard single-family homes in the neighborhood. And she says it might make the difference for middle-income families, such as young couples trying to buy their first home. To be able to get into the Northern California housing market, you know, on a brand new home in a very desirable location under $500,000 is a unique situation. Developers in California tend to build two kinds of housing, either single-family homes or large apartment buildings. Cities want to add more of a third option, so-called missing middle housing, like duplexes and triplexes, to add more density in a way that fits the neighborhood. Right now, they can't. That's because most residential areas are zoned exclusively for single-family homes. Supporters say these missing middle options will cut down on sprawl and create more walkable communities. 
and they're hopeful they'll be more affordable too. Housing expert Tom Davidoff of the University of British Columbia in Vancouver says they will be less expensive, but they still won't be in reach for everyone. The same structure divided into two. Definitely those two units sell for less than the bundled unit, and it allows more people to live in the neighborhood. Davidoff says he doesn't expect a surge in construction because there's not that much profit in turning a single-family home into a duplex. He says cities should zone for much greater density, such as apartment towers, to really solve the housing crunch. If you don't offer too much extra density, people aren't going to tear down the existing homes and build new because it's costly to tear down an existing structure. Many supporters of missing middle housing point to Minneapolis as a model. That city gained national attention in late 2018 when it became the first in the country to eliminate single-family zoning, followed shortly after by Portland. I asked housing advocate Margaret Kaplan of the Housing Justice Center in Minnesota whether she sees signs of new affordable homes in Minneapolis more than two years later. The answer to that is not much. Kaplan says in the first nine months of last year, Minneapolis issued just three permits for triplexes. But Kelly Snyder says the slow pace of production is not a reason to deny this change in California. Snyder teaches real estate development at San Jose State and works as a consultant in the industry. She says California cities should move forward with these new housing options because they won't cause the neighborhood disruptions many fear. We have seen in Portland and Minneapolis that this is not a dramatic change. She says there's a lot of other strategies to focus on, such as funding truly affordable housing, but for missing middle? Saying it's not worth doing is not an answer. It is worth doing. It won't alone solve a problem, but it's one more tool in the toolbox. In California, it may be several years before we know how well this tool works. In Sacramento, I'm Chris Nichols. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. The ability to hold in-person events is rapidly moving forward, but San Diego Opera has a long lead time for planning its events. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the opera's general director, David Bennett, about what these changes mean for the company and about its events scheduled for the end of this month. David, things are changing rapidly right now in terms of what organizations can do in terms of in-person events. So how are these changes impacting the opera right now? Well, you know, opera has a bit of a long time horizon. So, you know, booking artists and everything, we have to plan fairly 
far into the future. You know, what we have starting today with rehearsals was planned quite a while ago. But you're right, things are changing. So what it's making us do is look at next season with a more clear, open eye. Let's put it that way. We already have some plans in place for what we want to do for next season. We just had our budget approved by the board, finalizing casting for all of that. We will be returning to theaters next season. When we actually make a step back into a side, inside of a theater, it may change a little bit based upon the recent changes. And also, more importantly, how many people are allowed back in theaters? That's the real big unknown, but things that are looking hopeful now, right? There was a directive from the governor just last week about how live performances are really, they're now allowed. Even at, in where we are right now, which is the red tier, there are performances that are permittable, albeit with a very, very small audience. And that's the question, you know, how does it really work out in terms of a business proposition to be able to take on the expenses of producing opera? And where's the moment where we can do that with a lower number of uh, audience members that we can allow. So that's the big unknown, but we're look it's looking hopeful. And with some of these new restrictions, is it also going to be complicated in terms of there may be the vaccinated audience versus the unvaccinated audience? And then how much responsibility is it going to be on your organization to monitor all this? Yeah, it's a really good question because that was clearly part of the directive that was released last week is that there is under the guidelines that they're, they're now stating, there is a larger number of an audience that will be allowed if you can prove vaccination as well as negative tests within seven days prior to the performance. Now, will that change? Who knows? But that's the directive right now. And, you know, it, we don't quite know the answer. Who's going to be responsible for that? Will a venue, you know, we don't own any of our venues. Is it a combination of the venue and the producer like us as the opera? Will there be legal challenges to that? Does that put a responsibility on us that we really shouldn't be placed in that role? Who knows? Anyway, but the encouraging news is that it's all being dealt with right now. And it looks like there are some answers coming. Yeah, it seems like an awful lot of responsibility may be placed on venues and organizations. And then, you know, do you have to check, are those vaccine cards forged? Are they real? <laughs> right, know, the exactly. person who who yeah. actually got vaccinated holding the card? <laughs> right. I mean, you know, there there's a lot of national talk about pros and cons of, you know, some kind of passport, um, whether that will be something that will actually happen, whether there'll be any kind of an electronic system that we have where we show it on our phones. We do know before COVID, there was already a discussion about having increased security being required at our venues. So I think now there'll be just general security fo folded into some kind of COVID testing security protocols. Yeah, all yet to be determined, but the fact that it's moving forward in the conversation now, sooner than I'd anticipated it happening is good news for us. But you do have some events currently planned that are almost in person. You are doing drive-in, opera and concert. First, talk a little bit about the concert and how this is, has been conceived and what it's actually going to be for an audience. Sure. So, you know, we've had for the past four or five years, a concert that we call One Amazing Night. And we call it that because it is only one performance and it always is amazing. So we're using that concept, but we're instead of featuring a guest artist, we're featuring members of our chorus, along with some local talent, some wonderful local singing actors that are not usually performers with the opera. And the subtitle of One Amazing Night is When I See Your Face Again, which you know is the world we're all living in, hidden behind our masks. 
And the point of that title is we're selecting music that has been inspired by or composed in reaction to moments of pandemic, ranging from the Renaissance period all the way up to post-AIDS crisis. And a variety of music that features choral ensembles, but also individual solo singers, opera choruses, Renaissance choral music, uh, music from the Baroque period, individual arias, music theater, spoken word. And we have three local artists that I think are talent that our audience is really going to enjoy seeing, Angelina Ryu, also Allison Spratt Pierce, who's a very well-known music theater singer, and James Newcomb. And the three of them are joining members of our chorus. And also, of course, the musicians of the San Diego Symphony. And then you also have something to really lift our spirits, which is Barber of Seville. And that is going to be another drive-in opera. And you've this is going to be your second one. So how do you feel going into a second one? Have you learned a lot? Yeah, actually. The first thing I learned was to make sure I hired the same director <laughs> because she was so brilliant in Bohem. So we brought her back for this Barber of Seville. And, you know, directing uh, an opera for a drive-in audience and also meeting the spacing requirements that we have to abide by to keep the, self, the health and safety of our performers is not an easy thing. And Couture did a great job in Bohem, still told the story very clearly. She'll do the same with Barber. But one big learning that point that we had, which was a surprise to me, was that really we were able to create a sense of intimacy inside of this very big experience. And the reason why is the audience is still inside of their cars, right? So you have really high quality audio coming through the FM radio system mixed beautifully. And then what mostly you're seeing, yes, you see the performers on the stage, but there are eight very large screens around the area where the audience is parked and you see close-ups of the artists. So you have this sense of intimacy that you really are not able to uh, achieve inside of the Civic Theater, which was a great surprise and people really enjoyed that. And also the opportunity to actually comment to the people in your cars. It's okay to talk a little bit, right? It's okay to sing along as far as I'm concerned if you have your windows rolled up. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting things to recreate in this barber that we did in our Bohem. Katura Stickin directed La Boheme and found an innovative way to recreate that for a drive-in. So what is she doing for Barbara of Seville? Well, we we're taking a cue from the costumes that we're using from this production, which was set in the late 60s, early 70s. And so if we think of that world, Katura just told the cast in a meeting that we had earlier to sort of think of television during that area. And if we think of that, the strongest uh, television moment she talked about was Laugh-In particularly the um, cocktail hour in Laugh-In. So I think that world, also the world of uh, the Beatles movies, of the monkeys, zany, lots of dancing, lots of color, and funny. And, you know, Barbara of Seville is a comedy at its heart. And so if it's not funny, it's not fun. So this is going to be a funny, fun, zany, colorful Barbara. All right. I want to thank you very much for talking about the latest updates on San Diego Opera. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Beth Accomando speaking with San Diego Opera's David Bennett. The Barber of Seville starts April 25th, and One Amazing Night takes place on April 24th.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.